now in swinging over to the law, they were losing that freedom of action and that flexibility of self-determination. So Paul exhorts them to keep on standing fast in that freedom from law. You're listening to Galatians, a sermon series preached in the fall of 2019 at Shoreline Church. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. All right, so you didn't think you were going to come to church this morning and learn about circumcision, but that is where we're at in the text, and so we're going to be faithful to teach that. Uh, We teach topics as often as they come up in Scripture uh, because we teach uh, through the Scripture verse by verse. So uh, I love the way that John Piper introduces this text of Scripture in a sermon that he preached a few months ago in 1983. Mind you, (laughs) this was before Marty McFly Uh, drove the time machine back in time, okay? This is before some of you were even a twinkle in your father's eye. But I love how John Piper sets this up. I just want to read to you how he began his sermon in Galatians 5. He said this. Uh, Listen to this story. He says, I have a playtime with my sons after supper each evening until about 7 p.m. It's not easy to please a 10-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 3-year-old with one game. Recently, we've hit on a new idea. Karsten reads the Tower of Geburah to us all while I build towers out of blocks with Abraham on the floor. When 7 p.m. comes, I usually say, okay, Abraham, pick up the blocks and put them in the cart. And he usually says, will you help me please, Daddy? Now I have two possibilities. I can say, no, you pick them up and get it done in two minutes or there will be trouble. He may pout and fuss, but generally the job gets done. Or I can say, sure, I will help you. Let's see how fast we can do this together. So he hurries and works much faster and much more efficiently with my help, and we even have fun doing what needs to be done. And here's what he says. He says, Abraham's experience is very different in those two cases. In the first case, he is not free. He goes about his work as though a yoke of slavery were on his back and a big, heavy frog were on his bottom lip. He's not acting in freedom because the task is an oppressive weight that irritates and discourages him. But in the second case, he's free. He does better work with no irritation. He has the freedom and joy and feels no oppressive burden on his back. He still knows that daddy punishes for disobedience, but that is no heavy yoke because he's quite happy to pick up the blocks. What's the difference? Daddy was on the floor helping, even making it enjoyable. The same work to do, but in one case under the yoke of slavery, the other the case of freedom. There's a clue here for how we can live in freedom and obey Galatians 5.1. And here's what he says. He says, the key to freedom is whether we have to do the work ourselves to escape punishment or whether our Father comes down to be with us and help us. As we change gears in the book of Galatians, today we're going to move from the information to the application. Paul has been fighting for the churches there, and they had allowed the influence of the Judaizers to come in and pull them away from the simplicity of Christ in both their justification as well as their sanctification. And because of this outside influence, the Galatians, Paul says, have now fallen away from grace. And we'll understand what that phrase means and what it doesn't mean. But why? What had gotten them off the path? And as we'll see this morning, it was not something you'd expect. It was not necessarily idolatry, 
or some heinous sin, though those are certainly symptoms of a greater problem, it was actually a very simple, uh, sinister thing that happened to them. So we're going to see Paul challenge them in the beginning of chapter 5 with one big thought, and that big thought is simply this, that they would just be free, that they would be free. And this idea of being free kind of fleshes out in three sections in chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. So if you're taking note, here's what we're going to do today, looking at these three sections. The first section, we're going to see how the Galatians are free to stand. They're free to stand in that freedom. And then kind of a play on words, the second section, 7 through 12, is where Paul is kind of telling that person of influence that they're free to leave. You can leave now. You're influencing the church in a negative way. And so you're free to leave. Uh, and actually, he has some of the strongest language in all of his writings in that section. And then finally, we see that the real motivation, the real application, especially as we take communion later today, is that you and I are free, but our freedom is to love one another. We're free to love, verses 13 through 15. So let's begin in verse 1. We looked briefly at verse 1 last week as kind of the crescendo to last week's sermon. And this idea of free to stand, look at verse 1. For freedom Christ has, past tense, set us free. Stand firm, therefore, present tense, and do not submit again, future tense, to a yoke of slavery. So remember from last week, if you weren't here, we are not children of Hagar. We are not Ishmael. We are children of the promise. We are Isaac. And so we cast out the slave woman and we stand firm in the freedom that Christ has granted us by faith. We are justified by faith. And so Paul says for freedom, that's why Christ has set us free. So don't go back to that. Don't believe that your justification requires the law. Christ has done the finished work in your justification. So now don't submit again to that yoke. Now, look what he emphasizes next in verse 2. He says, look. And so what he really means is behold or, hey, pay attention. Focus. Look. Paul, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Verse 3, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is now obligated to keep the whole law. No, so let's talk about this. Physical circumcision. This was the sign of the covenant of Abraham. This was a seal to show that you were a member of the house of Israel. This was, you could say, a sign of your national identity. Uh, this showed that you were incorporated into or under the Mosaic law. And this was a prerequisite, actually, for the Passover ceremony. And it was generally a proof that you were belonging to Jehovah. So someone here might be like, well, what is circumcision? Maybe you're a visitor. You're like, what is that? Okay, so I'm glad you asked. I'm glad we get to talk about this. This is, this is great. Um, circumcision is simply this. It's the act of removing the foreskin of the male genital. So in ancient Israel, this act was ritually performed on the eighth day after the birth of the children of ultimately those who were uh, Israelites. Also happened to the servants and the foreigners, according to Leviticus 12. Circumcision was initially carried out by the father uh, who utilized a flint knife. Joshua 5.3 tells us about this. Later, they brought in specialists. Um, nothing worse than having your dad as a surgeon. <laughs> so to be uncircumcised then meant much more than, oh, you weigh a little bit more than me. Okay, to be uncircumcised meant you were outside of the covenant of God. You were outside of his covenant. You were a foreigner. 
uh, you were separated and excluded from the promises and the blessings of Yahweh. So to call someone uncircumcised, that actually meant disdain and disgrace. Remember Jacob's daughter, uh, Dinah, and she had been raped by Shechem. He was the future leader of the Shechemites. Um, And Jacob's large family was trying to settle with them. Do you remember that story? It's in Genesis, I believe, chapter uh, 34. And so there was this tense moment where the uncircumcised descendants of Abraham, uh, or the circumcised descendants of Abraham, were now in conflict with the uncircumcised heathen of the land. And so what do we do? And Shechem had this twisted, perverse desire that made him believe that he loved Dinah. And, And so... He loved her, but he didn't want to be her husband, Uh, much like some of the wolves that are out there today that say, I love you, but I'm not willing to be committed to you. Uh, I want to defile you and steal from you without actually loving you. And so Dinah's brothers, if you remember the story, were filled with contempt for Shechem. And so they kind of played a trick on him. They said, listen, we want to give you permission to marry our sister, but we can't give her up in marriage until you do this one little thing. Uh, and it, we hear about it in Genesis 34, 14. So they said to him, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who's uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. And so Shechem's response, it, it essentially, maybe not in the Hebrew, but he, he basically says, yeah, no problem. That's not a problem at all. And, and so all of Shechem's men kind of say, um, boss, how much do you love this girl? Because <laughs> we found out, we read the fine print, and we know what this actually involves. And so what happens in the story is that three days later, all of the men in that city are circumcised and they're in great pain. I call it the pain of Shechem, or you could call it Dinah's sore. Dinah's, no, okay, we're not going to do that, okay. (laughs) Sorry. You have to be a little bit fun with this, come on. And so Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, now you can't unsee it now once you see it. Dinah's brothers go in and they take advantage of the opportunity. All the men are in pain. They're all recovering. They're not doubled. You know, these men of of Israel are not doubled over in pain. And so they're able to kill every man in that city. And they carry off all the possessions that Shechem's descendants own. And so this was was an awful black eye uh, for Jacob. And this was actually a terrible example of human retribution versus trusting in God's ultimate vengeance. But that's a story of how, hey, we, we are the circumcised, you are the uncircumcised. We open with a call to worship this morning saying we used to be known as the uncircumcised. We were the outcasts. We were afar. We were estranged from God. And that's really the idea. And so this, this small ceremony of circumcision had big implications. Uh, it, it was a big picture of really the heart that was to be circumcised. It was a metaphor for this cutting away of the excess in our heart. It was a picture of what we were to do where our hearts are weighed down and we were to ultimately have a circumcision of the heart. Uh, And so a key passage to give us some clarity on circumcision is Romans chapter 2 on the screen. Paul said, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So the ultimate picture of circumcision was to kind of say, hey, this is something happening in the heart. Not everyone who is of Jacob is Israel. And so the gravity of Paul's statement in Galatians 5.2 is huge. He says in verse 2, look at it again. He's saying, look, I, Paul, pay attention if you fell asleep. He says, I, Paul, say to you, if you accept circumcision, if you take that one part of the law, 
then he says, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And then he goes on even further in verse 3 and says that if you accept it, you now have to keep the entirety of it. And then he goes further in verse 4. Verse 4, he says this, you are cut off from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. You see, if you replace Christ with law and Christ is no longer any value to you, then now you're a debtor to keep all of the law. And, and this leads to you being uh, severed from Christ. The word severed was one of Paul's favorite words. He used it at least 25 times, but a, a very interesting backstory. In fact, it's made up of two Greek words on the screen. The root word is argos, which means inactive or idle or unused, useless or inoperative. Uh, that's kind of how we were after we ate turkey this weekend. We were pretty much argos. We were inactive. We were idle. We were useless. Now, when you add the compound kata to it, the word katergeo now conveys this. Inactivity, uselessness. Notice this. That which was canceled, that which was done away with, that which was rendered completely inoperative. It's the word that Paul uses here, severed from Christ. It's the word that he uses in Luke chapter 13 when um, Jesus speaks of the parable of the fig tree. Remember that? When the man planted a fig tree and he came back three years later and it was completely barren and not bearing fruit. And here's what Jesus said, Luke 13, 7. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it, here's the phrase, why should it use up the soil? Why should it katergeo the soil? It's literally, why should the tree be allowed to make the ground idle? Why should the tree be allowed to do that? It's used in other uh, passages of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says, Prophecies shall fail, or they'll have no more work to do. It's used in 2 Timothy 1.10 where Christ abolished death. In other words, Christ said when he f accomplished his work at Calvary, Death had no more work to do. Uh, Romans 6.6 6, uh, tells us the body of sin is rendered inactive. It has no more um, power. Romans 3.31, uh, the question is, do we deprive the law of its work? In other words, do we render the law a dead letter? This word is translated many different ways, but the main idea is to make something null and void, non-existence or annihilated. And to drop the hammer... This is what Paul says you and I are doing with Christ when we go back to the law for our justification. When we feel like if I keep the law, now I have made my salvation that much better. You see, there's a formula here that leads to the falling away from grace. We'll put it on the screen. The formula is simply this. Verse 2, Christ will profit you nothing, which leads to you becoming, verse 3, a debtor to the whole law which leads to, verse 4, alienation from Christ. And when that happens, Paul says, you have fallen away from grace. Now, how does that happen? How does someone begin to find that Christ profits them nothing? This is a financial term when he says Christ has profited you nothing. It's almost as though Christ no longer brings you a profit. You have, a, you have an asset that no longer is bringing money to you. So it's a useless asset. The relationship is no longer beneficial. You no longer see the benefit of Jesus Christ crucified. Warren Wearsby said this. Now, it's bad enough that legalism robs the believer of his liberty, but more than that, it also robs him of his spiritual wealth in Christ. The believer living under law becomes a bankrupt 
slave. Wow. See, Paul makes it clear, church, that the law adds nothing because nothing can be added, right? Instead, the law comes in as a thief and it robs you of the spiritual riches that you have in Christ. And so the first step is beginning to rely on something other than Christ. And in the case of the Judaizers, that was circumcision. It might not be that for you today, but it's relying on something other than Jesus to be made right with God. Maybe it's not circumcision. Maybe it's mammon. Maybe it's the worship of materialistic goods. Maybe it's a relationship where you place your affirmation and love and worth and identity apart from Christ. It's something that, that becomes other than Christ. Uh, for some, it's, well, my church attendance or my giving. Uh, or, you know, I don't do those sinful things anymore, so that makes me justified. And it begins to boost your confidence in your own morality. Uh, And a friend of mine posted this recently. I love this. Moralism or legalism says, great is my faithfulness. And sometimes we sing that great is my faithfulness because I'm awesome, right? Uh, But the gospel says, great is thy faithfulness. Um, So I need to make a point here so that you don't misunderstand me. When Paul says you've fallen away from grace, I want you to note this down, jot this down. He's not referring to their salvation. He's not saying you've fallen away from salvation. You're unsaved now. No. He's already mentioned, remember, that the Galatians are his brothers. So to fall away from grace does not mean to be cut off from the saving grace of God in Christ and the work of salvation granted to all who repent and believe. When he says to fall away, you've fallen away from grace, here's what it means. It means to be out of the sphere of grace. You're out of that sphere. So now you're living under the influence of the law. And if you're living there, you cannot have dual citizenship in the sphere of grace and in the sphere of law. You have to select one. You can't have dual citizenship. So if you want to be under law, you have to pack up and move there, taxes and all. And you've got to live there. And so he says, you've fallen away from grace. Now you're under law, so you're going to have to live there. But see, the opposite of falling outside of grace is found in verses 5 and 6. Look at verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit... By faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Notice that word count, again, using a financial term. And this is what the sphere of grace looks like. Look at verse 5. We live our lives of hope through the Spirit by faith. And all of this is in Christ. So the only thing, Paul says, that is important is faith working through love. We know this. We stand firm in the grace of God by trusting in Christ alone. And then we work out our faith in that sphere of grace uh, by loving others by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in the meantime, we wait for the hope of righteousness and rest in the finished work of Christ. And so you and I, in this time of hope, we are longing for the day. When we're rid, I don't know if you are, I'm excited one day to be rid of these bodies that are plagued by sin, that are plagued by temptation, that are plagued by fear and all these other struggles. And in the meantime, we eagerly wait. Does that describe you? I am by the power of the Holy Spirit, leaning into loving others, waiting eagerly for the righteousness that is mine in Christ. Does that, does that describe your life? I read this week about... Um, a home in Union Grove, Wisconsin. There's a home for mentally challenged children, and the home is called the, Ch- the Shepherd's Home. 
And the founder of the home is a guy by the name of Bud Wood. And he said, we have a major maintenance problem at the home. We have to constantly do this one maintenance thing. And the maintenance thing is that we have to continually clean the windows. The windows are totally dirty on the interior of the home. And you might say, well, why are the windows so dirty on the inside? And the, um, the director said, well, you can walk through the corridor of our home any time of the day. And our kids have their hands and their noses and their faces pressed against the windows because these kids genuinely believe that Christ might return at any moment and make them physically and spiritually whole. Isn't that crazy? And so they're constantly leaning on the windows. Does that describe my anticipation for the coming of Christ? Does that capture the essence of the believer in hope? I'm leaning forward. And so I'm living my life by the Spirit through, or through the Spirit by faith in love towards others, eagerly awaiting the hope that is mine by the righteousness of Christ. Spurgeon said this, if we wanted to describe saving faith in one word, I would say it's trust. It is so believing God and so believing in Christ that we trust ourselves and our eternal destinies in the hands of a reconciled God. As creatures, we look up to the great Father of spirits. As sinners, we trust for the pardon of our sins to the atonement of Jesus Christ. As being weak and feeble, we trust to the power of the Holy Spirit to make us holy and to keep us so. We venture our eter eternal interests in the vessel of free grace, content to sink or swim with it. We rely upon God in Christ. You see, the Galatians had departed from that mostly because they had let an outside influence in. And so in verses 7 through 12, Paul begins to address these people. Again, spoiler, this is some of the strongest language, the most direct confrontational language in all of Paul's writings. Look at the second section and how this leaven is free to leave. Verse 7, he says first to the church, You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now notice these bullet points. He says, this persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. And the one who's troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. Notice with me the, the words that are in this little section. The words hindered, the word persuasion, the word leaven, and the word troubling. Okay? All of those words kind of go together. And the idea that Paul's building here is that works righteousness is a pervasive influence. It's kind of like a small pinch of leaven that eventually spreads to an entire lump of bread. The idea of leaven in the New Testament is almost exclusively a negative one. There is an example of a positive one, but most exclusively, almost to the 100%, but not there fully, it's this idea of negative. It's describing how a small idea can persuade an entire group of people. And so what Paul's saying here is when legalism is introduced to a church community, it doesn't take much, but like wasabi, a little bit goes a long way. And that's what he's saying here. A little goes a long way. You ever made that mistake? Like, oh, what's this? Let me try a full spoonful, right? It's gonna go a long way. So the verb for hindered or prevented in verse seven uh, commonly had military and athletic connotations. So in the military, uh, the word hindered or prevented meant the act of destroying a road in the face of an oncoming enemy. You just blow up the road. In the athletic sense, it meant the act of one runner who cut into your lane. So they come into your lane and they take over your lane. Uh, and so 
uh, that causes you to lose the race. So Paul was engaging in a Greek wordplay probably with this idea of obeying the truth and this word persuasion, very similar root word. So he could be saying, hey, you obeyed the persuasion, but you didn't obey the truth. And so Paul asks, who was it? Who was it that came in? You began well. Who came in and cut in on you? Who blew up the road and hindered you from moving forward? Who unsettled you? Who troubled you? Who's that leaven of influence? I could say it this morning in 2019. What authors have you been reading? What podcasts have you been listening to? Who have you allowed to maybe sprinkle their influence theologically? We should be very aware of who we're being discipled by. And listen, just because someone is a best-selling author or because their music is on the radio doesn't mean they're going to lead and influence me in the truth of Christ. Christian, be very cautious who you're being influenced by. Now, listen, Paul knew exactly who this was. It's not like he's asking this, like, who was that? I don't know who. He knew who it was. Verse 7 is a rhetorical question. So Paul wasn't asking this because he had no idea. He's asking this because he did know. And he was hoping that the believers would realize, oh, someone came into my lane and they've slowed me down. They made me lose the race. They blew up the road in front of me. They influenced the whole church and they're a troubling influence. And so Paul says, I wish that that person would bear the penalty. I wish that they would bear the penalty. Meaning I wish that they would repent, come to their senses, or be put out of the church. And then we come to verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Now, this is a little bit tricky to understand. Many scholars believe that the Judaizers who were influential were probably spreading this news around the churches that Paul was still secretly preaching and believing in circumcision. And so Paul was kind of acknowledging that, like, hey, if that's true, if their rumor is true, uh, then why would they be persecuting me? Right? So obviously it's not true. Now these Judaizers may have said, yeah, Timothy. Remember Timothy? He got circumcised. And we covered that a few weeks ago. Uh, maybe it was some other rumor. But Paul says, no, I haven't been preaching that message. And then he says in verse 12, verse 12 will not be on the verse of the day, but verse 12 says, I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Wow. Okay, let me walk you through this very briefly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but here's what this means. Circumcision is removing a portion of the foreskin. And what Paul is saying here is, I wish that they would just finish the job. I wish that they would just cut everything off. That's actually what Paul is saying here. <laughs> now, this sounds extreme, doesn't it? This sounds harsh. This sounds heavy. And you know what? Legalism is harsh and heavy and extreme. So preaching against it should also be. David Gusick helps us out here. He said, uh, sacred castration was known to citizens of the ancient world. It was frequently practiced by pagan priests of the cults in the region of Galatia. Paul's idea here is something like this. If cutting will make you righteous, why don't you do like the pagan priests, go all the way and castrate yourself? Morris rightly observes, this was a dreadful thing to wish but then the teaching was a dreadful thing to inflict on young Christians. With such a dramatic conclusion to this point, Paul has made one thing clear. Legalism is no little thing. He goes on and he says this. It takes away. Legalism takes away our liberty and it puts us into bondage. It makes Jesus and his work of no profit to us. 
it puts us under obligation to the whole law. It violates the work of the Spirit of God. It makes us focus on things that are irrelevant. It keeps us from running the race Jesus set before us. It isn't from Jesus. A little bit will infect an entire church. Those who promote it will face certain judgment no matter who they are. Legalism tries to take away some of the glory of the cross, and in light of how serious all of this is, it is no wonder that Paul says he wishes they would even cut themselves off. You see, in our politically correct culture, we are slow to use strong language like this out of fear of offending. And we've kind of done this weird thing where we've upheld kindness as the highest attribute of God rather than his holiness. And so we'd rather be kind than correct. We'd rather be polite than precise. We'd rather be amicable than honest. But listen, sometimes the blunt truth needs to be told. And so Paul says, just finish the job. Just do the work. But he's exhorting them in this extreme language to put this person aside. Paul suggests these Judaizers, they're free to leave the church so the church can get back into the race. And that brings us to our third idea, free to love. Look at verse 13. This is where it all comes together. Paul says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Back to verse 1. You were called to this. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Church, the essence of the Christian faith, Paul says, is one word. It's liberty. Our identity is not as slaves, but as liberated sons. Now, I wonder, is that how people view Christianity? Often we look more bound up and wound up than the world does. But Paul says, no, 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 don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, um, but actually serve one another. When we talk about the flesh, the flesh is our sinful nature. That is uh, what we have, unfortunately, in Adam. It's our fallen, corrupt nature. And we're told throughout the New Testament not to hang out with the flesh, not to make friends with the flesh, but to mortify it, to put it to death. Our kids were uh, maybe two, maybe they were younger than that, but we used to tell Aiden in London when they were very, very young, even maybe one at the dinner table, if they'd start pounding their, their, their high chair, we would say at age one, that's the flesh, don't be in the flesh, right? And so by the time they started talking, they're age three or four, They'd throw a temper tantrum and we'd say, London, what are you doing right now? What is that? And she would go, that's the flesh, right? And so, yeah, that's right. That is the flesh. Uh, so we're not to entertain the flesh. We're not, to, we're not to try to capture the flesh. We're to mortify it. We're to crucify it. We're to put it to death. Listen to me. A Christian walking in the flesh is a contradiction in terms. Instead, Paul exhorts us to serve one another through love. Look at verse 14. He goes this far. He says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So if you wanted to pull the spirit of the law out of the letter, then you would have the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second command would be like it. You're also to love your neighbor as yourself. And so remember, Jesus said all the law is summed up in these two commands because it ultimately is a vertical love and it's a horizontal love. If you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four are vertical, having, our relationship to, having to do with our relationship with God, and the other six are, ver, are horizontal. And so Paul's argument is if we truly want to live out the commands of God, it's fulfilled in one word, love. And then he shows us the opposite of love in verse 15. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. 
The natural result when you pit two flesh-filled people against one another is biting, it's devouring, and eventually it's consumption. Now, I wonder, looking at this passage of Scripture, if we really need to apply it. Do we need to apply this passage of Scripture? Because Paul has already really applied it for us. He's telling us we're free to stand in the grace of God and we're free to love others. And so I guess the best question for us to ask this morning before we go into a time of worship and communion is just simply this question. Are you free? Are you free? One New Testament scholar said the Judaizers lived their lives by dependence upon self-effort in an attempt to obey the law. The Galatian Christians had been living theirs in dependence upon the indwelling Holy Spirit. Their hearts had been occupied with the Lord Jesus, the details of their lives being guided by the ethics that emerged from the teaching of the apostles, both doctrinal and practical. Now, in swinging over to the law, they were losing that freedom of action and that flexibility of self-determination. So Paul exhorts them to keep on standing fast in that freedom from law. This morning, do you understand what Christ has accomplished for you and what the, the, the honest application is? It's that we're no longer to walk in the flesh. We're no longer to entertain the works of the flesh. Now, you can read ahead, you can look down even now and glance ahead at the works of the flesh found in verse 19 and 20, uh, even into 21. There's quite a list there. And so there's quite a list of things that the flesh brings up in the life of a, of a believer. And these are very obvious, evident things. In fact, let's just look ahead real quick at verses 19, 20, 21. He says, now the works of flesh are evident. In other words, they're obvious. And then he lists them, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In other words, if I miss something, it's something like those things. So if you're wondering, does my sin qualify? Yes, it does. It's in that camp. He says, these things, as I warned you before, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. This is not a picture of the believer. That's not how we're to live. That's the flesh. And yet, as kind of another spoiler alert. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is one word, it's love. And then it fleshes itself out in practical ways. So for us, church, the application is very simple for us. We are to walk in the Spirit, we're to trust in the finished work of Christ, and we're not to walk in the flesh towards one another, but in love. But as we close, I want to invite our worship team up. We're going to close the um, exposition of scripture with a song. We're leaving more time today for our communion. So our uh, ushers are going to make their way as well. But my question again for you is, are you free this morning? Are you free or have you fallen away from the sphere of grace? The question is simple. Does Christ profit you anymore? I'm not talking about an emotional experience that you have. I'm asking simply, is Christ sufficient in your life? My wife asks this all the time, is Jesus enough? Or what in Jesus is not enough that we would be moved to pursue these other things? See, one of the most amazing, amazing things about God is that like a loving father, when you come back to him, 
He doesn't say, yeah, let's talk about all that stuff. It's forgiven. He lovingly embraces you because grace isn't based on how close you stay to him. It's based on Christ's merit for you on the cross, which is complete and perfect. And so today you can come back to grace, to live in that sphere of grace, even now. One of my favorite hymns is a hymn that invites all of us to come. It's a hymn called Come Ye Sinners. And I want to put the words on the screen for us. Come ye sinners. It says, come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus, ready, stands to save you, full of pity, joined with power. He is able, he is able, he is willing, doubt no more. The next line says, come ye needy, come and welcome, God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace that brings you nigh. I love this phrase, without money, without money, come to Jesus Christ and buy. The work has been done, the price has been paid. And then he says this, the hymn says this, come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Not the righteous, not the righteous, sinners Jesus came to call. And then the line says, let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to fill your need of him. And this he gives you, this he gives you. It's the Spirit's rising beam. Finally, the line says, Lo, the incarnate God ascended, and he pleads the merit of his blood. Venture on him, venture holy. Let no other trust intrude. None but Jesus, none but Jesus can do helpless sinners good. Do you need to come to him today? Have you fallen out of the sphere of grace? Are you hoping that by your good efforts, that will be enough to save? Or are you willing to venture on him wholly and admit, no, Christ alone is sufficient. I can't be a dual citizen of law and grace. I must understand that I'm free and that freedom enables me to love others. So let me crucify the flesh, admit my need, admit my waywardness and confess, yeah, I have tried to sprinkle in my works righteousness to his finished work. And we don't do this often, but I want you to bow your heads. And maybe that's you today. And I just want to invite you to raise your hand so I can pray for you. If that's been you as of late, or maybe for the duration of your entire walk with Christ, today is a changing day for you. You need to acknowledge that, that you've been walking in works righteousness. Would you raise your hand? I see hands. I want to pray for you today. That hand going up is an admission. And we're gonna take communion in just a few moments to remind ourselves that as we come to this table, it's all about Jesus. And so thank you for raising your hands. I wanna pray for you and pray for our church as we close this time of study. Father, we thank you for those who have acknowledged and admitted that they've relied on their own works. Lord, forgive us when we've sprinkled in a little bit of our righteousness with the perfect righteousness. Lord, our righteousness as if it's as if a filthy rag were added to the, the stainless white garment of Christ. Lord, forgive us for that. We pray for mercy, that you would look upon um, that sin and forgive us, Lord, that we would just reckon the old man dead. We'd come this morning by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith, trusting in what you've done and what you've done alone. Lord, as we continue to reflect on the cross, we thank you for what we have in 
the body of Christ broken and the blood of Christ poured out for us. And as we return to this table, to the Lord's Supper, we remind ourselves, Lord, that we are insufficient, incapable in our own strength to save. But we thank you, Lord. We glory in the fact that you are mighty to save. And you have the power to save to the utmost. There's not one here that the Father has given you that will fall out of your hand. So thank you for that, Lord. I pray for our church, Lord, our church gathering, our community, our family. Lord, that today we would see Jesus lifted up and that we would come, even as sinners, even as forgiven saints, we'd come to your table and receive grace and mercy in our time of need. It's in Christ's name we pray and all who agree say amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.